Well, good evening again. Can, can you hear me okay? It's wonderful to sit with you here this evening. Uh, just very solid and quiet. Usually I sit very early in the morning and spend in the late afternoon. Actually, sitting in the evening is very nice. It's a pleasure. So um, this evening, this is essentially supposed to be a Dharma context. So uh, I'm going to uh, maybe set that context before I go into talking more in detail about what we experienced in Burma. I'm thinking today, and also I'd like to leave time for question and answer. I think we have a microphone that we can pass. And, um, I'm very aware today that uh, this is the week of Martin Luther King's birthday. He would have been 79. Which is actually the age of my teacher, Sojin Weitzman. Uh, were, were any of you at the March on Washington in '63? Me too. I remember where I was standing, <coughs> listening to that speech. And then um, um, I don't know, Alan, if you heard Martin Luther King at Temple Bethel in nineteen in the spring of our. In the, in the uh, fall of our senior year, he came to uh, this suburban town uh, that I grew up in, Great Neck, Long Island, and uh, spoke at the temple. Uh, so I had some experience of him twice in my life. And lately, for the last number of years, I've been teaching a workshop on the Dharma of Martin Luther King. So I've really been steeping myself in basically his life and his teachings and reading all the biographies and um, I just <coughs> had the pleasure last week for the first time of uh, teaching it in the south in uh, North Carolina uh, and uh, of course it was the liberal south, it was Chapel Hill so it was full of people <laughs> like you um, but uh, it's also the new south and it's the new south a lot because of him. Not that there aren't vestiges of the old that still remain, uh, but there's also vestiges of what he was truly working against, which was using violence as a way for resolving our conflicts, conflicts in our families, conflicts in our societies, conflicts among nations. And uh, as we are aware, that is still uh, widely extant. Uh, so that is still our work, that work of peace. That's the work that we are doing here in this room with ourselves, that we use here as a method, as almost like a laboratory and then we take that out into the world to the best we can and try to create harmony in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities. This, I think, is uh, 
this is what I see as my work, this is what I see as the work of people who practice the Dharma. And it's not, of course, uh, theirs alone. I feel it's the work of people who practice, truly practice, any spiritual tradition. And that's why um, I was thinking, why do I want to, why did I want to come here and talk about Burma? And I think it has to do with understandings that I gleaned in my childhood and that have deepened through contact with our, with our teachers. And I think there are a number of Dharma teachings that are just I'd like to lay out at the beginning. I think that Burma matters to me because I have some glimmering of understanding of interdependence. What the Buddha taught as dependent origination. What Martin Luther King said, one of the things he said was in the letter that he wrote from the Birmingham jail, we are all tied together in a single garment of destiny, an inescapable network of mutuality. I can never be what I ought to be until you are allowed to be what you ought to be. Elsewhere, he said in a sermon, we are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma who studied deeply the works of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. In 1997, she wrote, the cause of liberty and justice finds sympathetic responses in far reaches of the globe, thinking and feeling people everywhere, regardless of color or creed, understand the deeply rooted human need for a meaningful existence. Those fortunate to live in societies where they are entitled to full political rights can reach out to help the less fortunate in other parts of our troubled planet. Young women and young men setting forth to leave their mark on the world might wish to cast their eyes beyond their own frontiers to the shadowlands of lost rights. That's a beautiful phrase. To the shadowlands of lost rights. Please use your liberty to promote ours. This is her plea to us. I was thinking back also, I've been involved with working in Burma for about 17, 18 years now through Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And I've been, this is this last trip was my first trip into. Burma itself, legally, I've been across the border 
uh, a number of times, the Thai-Burma border, the Bangladesh-Burma border, to the camps for refugees and displaced people on both sides of that border. These are difficult places, places simultaneously of pride, self-governance, and poverty and neglect. And at one point, as I was there, I was trying to reflect, why does this call to me? And it, I realized it should have been obvious, but um, it took me some digging to get to it, that um, within my own historical memory, at that point, within approximately 75 years, my grandparents and their parents had been displaced from their country. I would imagine there are many people in this room who have actually a similar background. Within your, your bodily memory, this is not so unusual. This is actually one of those painful but very real very widespread human experiences. So, to see the children in these camps was to look back through time to see my own grandparents and to realize how critical it was that they found a place to live and thrive, and learn, and grow, without that, I would not be here. I would not be here talking to you. So, in this realm of interdependent origination, as a human being, this is what I owe. This is part of what I owe to the Burmese. You all have heard, I'm sure, numerous times about Dana. So, this evening and every time you come here, you have an opportunity to offer Dana in a material sense. Uh, this is something that we can give back. You know, we give to our teachers, we give to our communities, we give back to the Burmese who are in, in great need. But in the traditional teaching, material giving is just the first dimension of dana. There are two other very important dimensions. Uh, one is fearlessness. To give fearlessness is a really powerful, ultimate gift. There's some wonderful things that Aung San Suu Kyi has written. In fact, uh, her the book that I recommend, and I don't know if they have it in the bookstore, 
Uh, but I really strongly recommend you get it to learn about Burma and to learn who she is. Do people know about her? Aung San Suu Kyi was the daughter of the, the, one of the great patriots of Burma's independence movement, uh, General Aung San, who uh, was instrumental in the anti-colonial movement in the 1940s and then sided with the British against the Japanese in World War II and was the creator of the modern Burmese, Burmese state. Uh, and then he died as a result of factional violence, which is a problem that they have there. His whole cabinet was assassinated when Aung San Suu Kyi was two years old. She, her mother was became a diplomat, uh, represented Burma, in, was the ambassador to India, then moved to England. Aung San Suu Kyi was educated in England, married there, but all of her life she felt that there was bound to be a calling in Burma. And it so happened that in 1988, when her mother, who was quite elderly then, had a stroke, she returned to take care of her, and that coincided, uh, quite coincidentally, with this very powerful democracy movement that sprang up against a dictatorship that had been in place, a somewhat wacky dictatorship that had been in place since 1962. Wacky, but brutal. Um, the General Ne Win who had taken over the, gov the elected government in 1962 with a military coup. Um, well, he had some interesting ideas. I mean, he, he developed what he called uh, the Burmese way of socialism, which um, essentially turned Burma into mm, something like the Albania of Southeast Asia. That's really, you know, a high aspiration, right? Uh, completely isolated from the rest of the world. At one point, I think in 86 or 87, and this was one of the proximate causes for the democracy rebellion, which was also a rebellion for economic rights, uh, he decided that based on his own uh, belief system, uh, which uh, was highly uh, dependent on numerology, that uh, he was going to eliminate the decimal system for money. And so he took all of the bills out of circulation, people's complete savings wiped out, and replaced all the decimal system bills with bills on, uh, based, on this, based on multiples of nine. Uh, you know, like they had nine chop bills, and 18 shot bills and 81 shot bills. It's like, this is, you know, kind of interesting idea. I mean, I, we didn't learn, I, I never had the new math, so I don't know about the base nine system, but uh, this was a disaster. So Aung San Suu Kyi was there, remains there. She's been a political prisoner for 13 of the last 18 years. And she writes, um, cogently about fear and fearlessness. 
as dana, as a gift. She's a very strong Buddhist practitioner who actually has some of the same teachers as your teachers here. She studied with Upandita uh, before she was before she was uh, imprisoned. So she writes, fearlessness may be a gift, but perhaps more precious is the courage acquired through endeavor, courage that comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let fear dictate one's actions. Courage that could be described as grace under pressure. Grace which is renewed repeatedly in the face of harsh and unremitting pressure. Within a system which denies the existence of basic human rights, fear tends to be the order of the day. Fear of imprisonment, fear of torture, fear of death, fear of losing friends, family, property, or means of livelihood. Fear of poverty, fear of isolation, fear of failure. A most insidious form of fear is that which masquerades as common sense or even wisdom, condemning as foolish, reckless, insignificant, or futile the small daily acts of courage which help to preserve people's self-respect and inherent human dignity. It is not easy for a people conditioned by fear under the iron rule of the principle that might is right to free themselves from the enervating miasma of fear. Yet even under the most crushing state machinery, courage rises up again and again, for fear is not the natural state of civilized man. And that is what I saw. And I'll, I'll say a bit more about that. But So it's that, that dana of fearlessness. Along with that is the gift of nonviolence. Not a traditional not a traditional Dharma principle, but embedded in the very first precept, not to kill or not to harm. So Aung San Suu Kyi says, some believe that the only way to remove the authoritarian regime and replace it with a democratic one is through violent means. And I did meet people who believe that. I did meet people who advocate that. She says, I would like to set the precedent of political change through political settlement, not through violence. Dr. King says this in a very visceral way. If I hit you, and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and we go on, you see, that goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. Somewhere, somebody must have a little sense. And that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. Inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. I love I really love that line. So the last 
in the context of, of Donna, I have to acknowledge what we've received, the gift of Dharma itself, which is another one of the traditional gifts. We have to acknowledge and figure out how to repay our teachers who really worked hard and were incredibly daring, you know, at least as daring as Columbus in coming here. Uh, Columbus didn't know what he was facing. He thought he was on his way to China. But they realized they're coming to meet all these strange and wily Americans. So in my tradition, we have Suzuki Roshi, uh, whom some of you know through his writings, and other teachers, as far as Katagiri Roshi, who came to San Francisco and uh, uh, then planted the seed of Zen in Minnesota, and Kobanchino Roshi, who also came to assist Suzuki Roshi. But in the tradition of Spirit Rock and IMS, you have Mahasi Sayadaw, and Upandita. In America, we also have the teachings of Sayagi Ubakin and uh, Goenka, Mother Sayama, Ulakana. We had here in the Bay Area, some of you may have met Usulananda. Uh, up in Petaluma, there's Dr. Tintin. All of these are people who brought the traditional Burmese teaching to us. And the debt we owe them is enormous. So that kind of sets a, a dharma context, I hope. I think that has something to do with why I went there in December. Uh, I was also telling a gentleman here, uh, I think I went there... Uh, well, I actually wouldn't call it, it just occurred to me, maybe it was midlife crisis. Um, but I, I'm trying to figure out what to do to mark uh, my uh, impending 60th birthday. Uh, I didn't want, I really didn't want to, I couldn't face a party, you know, and I didn't know what to do. But we had been talking through International Network of Engaged Buddhists and through Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And I realized, well, the thing to do would be to go to Burma and bear witness. Uh, and uh, so in a personal sense, for all the reasons that I articulated before, that's, that's what I did. And actually, I got back the day before my 60th birthday. And I wrote a letter, actually before my birthday, I wrote a letter to a lot of friends and uh, said, well, here's what I'm doing. You know, uh, are you interested in supporting this? Actually, my, I was given a ticket by uh, the Foundation for People of Burma, so I wanted, what we were supporting was not me, but this in the delegation that we created and whatever money's left over for the people that we met in Burma. And uh, my friends were kind enough to be very generous. It was quite a wonderful uh, experience. I've never written a letter like that. But in the end, there were not a whole lot of us who were able or willing or uh, ready to go. 
So I flew to Bangkok, and there we formed this little delegation. There were four of us. Uh, my friend Jill Jameson from the uh, Melbourne, Australia chapter of Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Uh, a monk friend, Prapai San, who's an engaged Buddhist monk in a forest tradition in Thailand, who I know for quite a long time. Uh, he lives in the northeast of Thailand, uh, but he's well known for his, his writings on the environment and on social action, and a disciple of his, whose name is very long in Thai, but I will, he, he calls himself Top, so that, that's easy. And we had four purposes to this, or several purposes. One was simply to bear witness uh, to what we would see or what we would find in Rangoon and also on the Thai-Burma border. We went to Mesop. Uh, second was to convey to the people that we met a sense of communion and to bring to them news that the rest of the world had not forgotten about them and was still paying attention and that we wanted to we wanted to convey that bearing witness also involved hearing their stories and boy everybody had a story to tell and if you ask so simple a question as how are you the answer began in mid-August and then had to be brought up to date from August to, to December because they didn't have an opportunity to to tell their stories. And the, the final purpose, I think, was to explore areas for potential support. Support for monks and nuns, support for, for political prisoners, and support for the children, orphans there. So what we found when we got to Rangoon was uh, there were no monks in the streets. All that we saw in the streets were old men and boys in the places where you would see, and I'm sure some of you have been to Burma, where you would see the streets or or public areas around uh, Sule Pagoda or Shwedagong, you know, sort of teeming with monks, they weren't there. And this is really the compelling question is where are the monks? To drive past the monasteries of Rangoon and see police and military vehicles parked outside, either blocking the gates entirely or registering everyone who comes and goes. This was, in fact, our experience. We went to a monastic orphanage one day. Uh, we visited several of these orphanages. And this is a main, uh, a main mainstay of, of the Burmese educational system. There are 162 monastic orphanages in the Rangoon district alone. And we ran the numbers we figured that added up to about 75 or 80,000 children living in terrible 
conditions. You can see, if you saw some of the photographs back there, uh, there's a photograph of a dormitory, uh, and it's fairly squalid. The condition of life, at least they're taken care of, but the food is, is very is in very short supply. The rice is the is a worse quality mixed with sand and extended into a kind of gruel. Uh, the children, and you know, again you can see from these, these pictures, again, some of you have been to Burma and been to Thailand and you've seen novices and young boys and young girls in these schools, even in even in the difficult places that I've been to. Uh, children have a remarkable resilience and a natural bubbling up kind of joy. And you'll see on the expressions uh, in those photographs, joy is in short supply right now. Uh, so we went to this monastery, we, we left donations of cash where we went, but we also felt like really wanted to, you know, cash is nice, but you want to bring something, right? And this is you bring a gift. Uh, so we asked around and, and our friends told us, well, uh, kids really like ramen. <laughs> there were 500 kids. We, we bought 30 cases of ramen, uh, which were actually quite cheap. But as we were delivering them, handing them out, the, we weren't, the teachers were handing them out to all the kids, uh, we found out later that we had been followed in by military intelligence uh, who inquired of the head monk uh, about what we were doing there. And I guess that it was legal that day uh, to feed children. Uh, seemed to me we were doing their work. But um, we, were, we were approached. We, were, it, we felt watched. And our main concern was not for ourselves. We, I wasn't worried. Other people were worried about me. Uh, but I felt like we have a certain Western privilege and that was probably going to get us through. But what we worried about were the people that we were meeting with. That was our first concern, was not to jeopardize them. So it's a mixed thing. We needed to see these monasteries and these orphanages because we actually want to help them. At the same time, any contact with Westerners is highly suspect and puts people at risk. So you have to weigh the risk and weigh the concern. These monastic orphanages where there were where there had been a hundred monks teaching children, teaching 300, 500, 700 children, there were five or six left. What we found from talking with, with monks is that they had been, after the crackdown in October, uh, they had been sent to uh, back to their villages. Um, some of them disrobed, some of them fled. Leaders are still in prison. But the vast majority of monks, nobody knows where they are. Uh, 
they've not been heard from. Everyone we asked, they had no sense of where they, how they were doing or where they were. I realize I should go backwards, and I'm only going to talk for a little while longer and then entertain questions, but uh, you may not understand why this democracy uprising happened. Uh, in August, uh, with no warning, the government doubled or tripled gasoline prices and quintupled the price of natural gas, uh, which is actually largely used for powering automobiles as well as for cooking. This was a devastating economic blow. You have to realize, when we talk to teachers there, uh, teachers were making something on the average of 12 to $15 a month. So if you bring gasoline prices up in, you know, even to half of what we pay, this is not bearable for ordinary people. So monks live in a close, symbiotic, interdependent relationship with people. There are 400,000, 500,000 monks and nuns. Uh, every family is related to someone in a Buddhist, in a Buddhist community. And so they understood what was happening to their families. They also understood in a very clear, direct way because the effect of that, those price rises was that people were not able to feed them. And that's how the monks get their food, on alms rounds. So, in September, in the city of Pokoku, several hundred Burmese monks went on a nonviolent march through the town chanting the Metta Sutta, Sutra of Loving Kindness. And as they did that, they were attacked by Burmese troops who, who tied and beat three monks. The monks, the All-Burmese Monks Alliance, wrote a leaflet seeking apology from the military uh, and, of course, there was no apology. And so the Alliance urged this kind of radical Buddhist tactic, which is uh, translates as overturning the alms bowl. So, you know, they carry these big bowls. But they, would n they refused to receive food or donations from the Burmese military or their families. This is, uh, in a culture where merit-making is a sort of supreme religious value, this is a highly radical act. Uh, and this act caught on, but so did, the, so did the demonstrations. So within about a week and a half or two weeks, you had tens of thousands of monks uh, creating what's been called the Saffron Revolution in the largest protests in 20 years. And they went through all of the cities of Burma. Uh, and the monks were making strong statements, which is unusual and also wonderful. Uh, one of which was, 
describing the junta as an evil military despotism which is impoverishing and pauperizing our people of all walks, including the clergy, as the common enemy of all citizens. So this is really strong stuff from the Buddhist culture. Uh, really strong stuff coming from monks who are seen as the sons of Buddha. The demonstration spread. I don't know, you. I'm sure everyone saw the photographs. Uh, I saw photographs that a friend, uh, videos that a friend took. It was incredible, just a sea of robes. Uh, and as they spread, they were joined by uh, citizens, by young people, by actually working people. And this went on for several days until the military cracked down. And when they cracked down, they cracked down really hard. We spoke to activists who were underground. We spoke to diplomats. Uh, Jill, Jill met with the Australian ambassador, and I had a, a two-hour meeting with the American Charged Affair, who was the top diplomat. I mean, it, it struck me that uh, if she was spending two hours meeting with me one-on-one, -on -one, she probably didn't have enough to do. But, but that's because they won't talk to her. The generals won't talk to her. But the estimates of those who were, the numbers killed and disappeared are much higher than the numbers that are registered by the, by the junta, uh, which, who say, 10. Uh, the numbers are surely in the hundreds. And there are still uh, more than 1,500 <coughs> prisoners in the Burmese prisons right now, and they are continually being rounded up and hunted down day by day. So, we met with activists, we met with uh, monks, we went to monastic schools, and we found a culture that was a, a, a city that had a sort of surface-seeming tranquility, but there was a pervasive sense of fear. Uh, you didn't talk about things on the telephone. You watched who was around. There were people observing in the tea shops. You know, people were very nervous to have conversations, but they were also very eager to have conversations. So the spirit was just bursting through. And at the same time, in people's homes, when you talk to them, you could see that there was this natural joy that they had, even in the midst of the fear joy and liberation can also surface and bubble up, which was incredibly encouraging. The most wonderful place we went was to a music school, and we're working with uh, uh, Hal Nathan. I'm working with Hal Nathan, who some of you know. He's, I, I think he's in the Spirit Rock World, uh, from the Foundation for People of Burma, a tour for this uh, Gitame music school. And this is a very, in a very quiet neighborhood, stuck way behind uh, a Hindu temple. And these are kids from all of the different ethnic groups in Burma who are learning traditional music, who are singing a cappella stuff, and who are really hot to come here and meet Bobby McFerrin and the Bobs. 
and they really sing good. So this, it's like the youth is really the hope for the future of Burma. And the political prisoners are also the hope in that they carry an understanding both of the Dharma, because everyone practices Dharma. We met from Rangoon, we went to Mesot. We went, flew back to Bangkok and drove to Mesot. And we met in Mesot a uh, number of people. That's where the resistance and opposition organizations are often headquartered, right there on the Thai Burma border, across the Moy River in Thailand from uh, the small Burmese town of Mayawadi. We met a young man, or, you know, well, I have to consider him young. Now he's probably about 40, uh, uh, who was a representative of the National League for Democracy. He had spent 15 years in prison. Uh, for two of them, he was shackled the whole time and paralyzed in his right leg, uh, which he was just beginning to get back. And what he described was how really consumed with bitterness he was for his first months in prison. And then, when it was really unbearable, he found a way to fall back on his meditation training. He had, two years before, he had, he had done a one-month course with, Up, at, with Upandita. And just when he, when he reached the end of that bitterness, he realized that he had something that he could do which was to <clears throat> practice mindfulness. And, you know, he said this saved him. You know, he felt that he would, would have gone mad otherwise. And there were many people we met who had relied on their meditation practice. I know, you know, some of you may do prison work here, and we know prisoners in in American prisons are learning to rely on their meditation practice and on other spiritual practices, but uh, it was very powerful to, to see people who were integrating their political understanding and their dharma understanding, and that this is really, I think, the hope for the future. Finally, in, uh, in Mesot, we met about a dozen exiled monks or fled monks, actually. Ones who had escaped from inside Burma. In order to do so, they all had to disrobe and make the journey inside Burma to the Thai-Burma border. And then they, they re-robed when they came to Burma, but went came to Thailand. Uh, and it was interesting because some of them, very strong, very clear, uh, had a very good understanding of what they were doing. And some of them looked, frankly, shell-shocked. Uh, they, their intuitive sense was to go along with their brothers into the streets, because that's what was happening. A hundred thousand monks, uh, at least, were marching. But you can't say that all of them knew quite 
how or why they were marching. I had an understanding of what the consequences were. And so some of them were in great pain. Um, and some of them were very clear. This is something that I think we're working on. There are a number of things that I'm working on. Uh, and I'm working actually closely with Jack Cornfield. Uh, Jack called me up. Uh, there's this, the idea sort of is simultaneously arising about creating a Dhamma center for exiled monks in Thailand, perhaps also in Bangladesh. Because Thailand is not a signatory to the international refugee uh, agreements, covenants, and so these monks are at risk of arrest, and the Thai immigration police have a great racket going. They arrest people, they get bribes, they turn them loose, and the next time they see them, they re-arrest them. You know, it's a pretty good deal. Uh, one of the monks we met, after making his way all the way across Burma, as soon as he got in Thailand, he was arrested and friends had to come up with $800 to get him out. So they can't go out in the streets, they're quite identifiable, and we're working now to create a Dhamma Center. That's, uh, that's really one of the highest priorities. We're also working to create resources where children can actually live um, live and study in circumstances that are not circumstances of neglect, but where there's a rel- where there's a wholesome environment and where they're learning school- learning the techniques of critical thinking, not of memorization and rote, but education that will really serve them for the future. So aside from the political actions that we can do here. These are the humanitarian actions that that I'm working on with friends in Asia. Uh, Jack is helping me with this and I would encourage you to participate in it. On the political level, we have friends who are working with the U.S. government. The U.S. government actually has pretty good policies towards, towards Burma. We could spend a lot of time debating the virtue and efficacy of sanctions, but I hope we won't do that. To me, the the point of the sanctions is to support Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy. This is what they are calling for, and so it's our responsibility to to support them, uh, even though we know there's a there's a downside to them. But. Um, We're working, I was just talking with Sarah, uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship and the Bay Area, uh, the the Burmese American uh, Democratic Alliance and others, uh, including Spirit Rock, San Francisco Zen Center, we're working on a a kind of uh, emblematic event in April to keep Burma in the sights of the world and we're we're hoping to create a large march across the Golden Gate Bridge which happens to be the same color as Burmese monks' robes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so to have a visual effect that will that will be emblematic to the world and and to have a rally at, at one or the other end. So I, I think you will hear more about this in in the coming weeks. But I think I'm going to stop there and just I'd like to open up to questions. Uh, oh yeah, there's the microphone. We have about ten minutes or so left. So the floor is open. There's a question over there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which one? This way? Yeah. Hasn't something just happened in the last five days in Burma that was on the news about perhaps rounding up monks again? Um, yes, um, well, they've been rounding up political prisoners. I haven't heard about monks. I haven't heard of any monks' uh, demonstrations. The thing, most significant thing that, that's happened in Burma in the, last, in the last week is the Burmese sort of blew off the UN, uh, and the UN let that happen. Uh, there was supposed to be a visit by Gambari, who's a special rapporteur, uh, and the Burmese said, well, it's not convenient for you to come. And the question is, how do we deal with that? Other questions or comments? You over here. Uh, I've heard that uh, President Bush was kind of expressed outrage about what was going on in Burma and demanded that the Chinese and India take some sort of action. And do you know if they have taken any sort of action? Um, yeah, well, I don't know if he demanded, because that's probably not too cool. Um, but that is, those are the critical pieces. And it's a kind of geopolitical thing. But India... What India has done in the last uh, in the last month or so is they have they have said uh, semi officially or almost officially that they are not going to continue arms sales to Burma, and I think that one of the strategies, one of the international strategies that we would really like to see is uh, end of all arms shipments to Burma. One of the largest avenues of that. The two largest avenues have been India and China, who are both jockeying. They surround Burma. You know, the two largest uh, population areas in the world are jockeying, and they basically are sucking the resources out of the country. And they also, it's also kind of a proxy geopolitical struggle, which is, which is complicated. So China has been somewhat intransigent on that, and We've been demonstrating outside the Chinese embassy uh, every few weeks, and I think hopefully along with people working on Darfur, working on Tibet, there will be some strategy for confronting the Chinese uh, during the Summer Olympics. Summer Olympics, curiously, and I think it's coincidentally, are opening on the 8th of August 2008. The 
demonstration movement in Burma began on the 8th of August. So eight, it began on the 8th of August, 1988. 8888. Eight, eight, eight. So this is the 20-year anniversary, and so this seems like a, a really key day. There was something over here. Yeah. Have there been any uh, cracks in the Burmese military itself uh, since uh, they're going against the leaders of their own religion? Um, you, you hear a little about it indirectly. He said, are there any cracks in the, in the Burmese military? To tell you the truth, that's my hope. My hope is that the Burmese military will will collapse or will reconstruct itself. Aung San Suu Kyi has been very, her father was a general. She's been very, very careful not to vilify the military as a whole. Rather, particular leaders, particularly Tan Shui at this point in time, who is the, the chief honcho. Uh, we know from people that I spoke to in Burma, uh, People we spoke to who know people in the military, speaking with the charge d'affaires, that there are sections of the military that are very, very unhappy about this. Uh, no, it's, it's not that the Burmese have never hurt monks before, but the scale of this and the public awareness of this is, is really new, and it's not what the military as a whole wants to participate in, but they also are corralled by fear. So how long can that be sustained? How long can fear be actually the structure of a society? This is a very good question for us. Not just for the Burmese, for us. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's another, I think, compelling reason that we look at Burma. Uh, not just what we can do, but what we can learn. <coughs> I see something back there. Yeah. Yeah. You want to wait for the microphone? I don't think that's uh, all right. Can you hear me? Speak loudly. Yeah. All right. Uh, I mean, you painted a picture of, of Burma in, in utter despair, with monks uh, either isolated somewhere or banished. Hunger among the children and all this, which is ongoing and terrible. Yes. And, and you have a military hunter that that basically regulates the ongoing infrastructure. I gather of the of the uh, of the country. Yeah. Now, it, it's the old story. They have the guns. That's right. They have the power, and the Buddhist tradition would not, in this case, permit that. I mean, they're not about to say, all right, let's arm ourselves and, and do the, uh, the right, the wrong thing, by which I mean the right thing, however way you want to look at it. So what you're looking for is, is a kind of peaceful evolution or a peaceful revolution. But it, it doesn't look good because, uh, uh, as I say, what's to stop this hunter? They're well ensconced there, uh, uh, being there indefinitely as they are in, in countries like Pakistan or in, uh, in countries like Iraq or Iran, you know, the same old story, Indonesia. 
Well, I don't think it's quite the same old story, but I also don't, I can't argue against your logic because um, they've been there a long time already. Uh, and they do have the provenance of force. What I think is interesting in this particular situation and what everybody keeps pointing to is uh, the depth of the Buddhist tradition there as another as a as a factor that also theoretically can undercut the violence. So there's a tension. And this is, you know, something that Dr. King talked about. Uh, he said, I'm not afraid of tension. Uh, so the question is, what creates social change? I mean I think that's a that's a very deep discussion and one that we need to keep having. And to be quite honest with you, I didn't hear any clear vision. It's not that everything is in despair. What's happened in, you know, there, there are all kinds of side effects. The networks are reconstructing themselves. And there was an article in one of the newspapers I read uh, that actually the junta created networks by throwing people into jails where they met, you know where people from different factions, different groups, actually got to meet and see what they had in common. These networks, the yearning for freedom is so strong, they will reconstruct. Uh, the question is whether this will be a violent or nonviolent transformation. Uh, I have faith in nonviolence. Um, I think we've seen it work in some places, but it, we can't be naive about it that it's not, that sometimes nonviolence, what Dr. King said was the function of active nonviolence. And I think this is what the monks who are politically astute and the activists who are politically astute understand is to create a crisis. It's to surface the violence that's already so clear in the system, to surface that, to bring that to complete attention of everyone involved but not to retaliate. So this is an approach. Whether it will work or how long it will take to work in a place like Burma, we don't know. We do see, you know, knock on wood, uh, is that Burma? Is that Buddhist? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> they haven't dared to uh, eliminate Aung San Suu Kyi. So there are some natural there, there are some resistances and holding back that you see. So it's hard to say how that's going to go. Maybe one more question, and then it's about 9.15. Um, what's Chevron's role in this right now? Ah. Seeing as they're based here in the Bay Area. Yes. And um, they are offering, through a free market decision, economic support right now to the Burmese government. Right. Well, that's exactly you got it. Through free market... Uh, Chevron has a 28% stake in the oil and natural gas pipeline from the Indian Ocean across Burma to Thailand. Um, they bought it, they got it when they bought out Unical, who had, who had originated this. And uh, they were grandfathered in, despite the fact that, that sanction, economic sanctions and limitations were in place, they were grandfathered in by the Clinton administration 
and allowed to continue to extract gas. So, on a practical sense, on a practical sense, for Burma, it has no real effect because if Chevron were to divest, uh, the Chinese would be there in five minutes. They would buy. They would buy all of the uh, all of the rights to this and trade would go on, and the Burmese would get the money that they were getting. Uh, and this was what actually the charge did. This is where I dif differed with the charge affair, because this is what she said. You know, uh, on an ethical sense, and I just saw actually an editorial in an Indian newspaper, it completely undercuts our much vaunted moral or ethical position in relation to Burma. So, oh, we have all these sanctions, they're really tough. Oh, but there's this, yeah, all except for Chevron. So if we want to be consistent in our national position vis-a-vis -vis Burma, whether, aside from the fact of whether it's completely efficacious or not, then uh, we should be pushing for divestment. And I think that's something that we're developing a BPF with uh, Burmese American Democratic Alliance, uh, how to do that. And it might be uh, to begin a grassroots campaign, also with the U.S. campaign for, uh, uh, for Burma, uh, a grassroots uh, campaign to get us to send our Chevron credit cards back, which uh, my wife and I have done with a, with with a note. You know, Chevron doesn't need this. Uh, the Burmese don't need this. And if we can if we can actually have a clear ethical position as a nation, how unusual for us. You know? You know, I mean it's like, oh, that would be refreshing. You know, and it's it's interesting because it's this is virtually the only issue in the history of the Bush administration where Democrats and Republicans are actually in full agreement and they get along with the State Department, which is in full agreement, and the executive, which is in full agreement. Now, of course, that's because it really doesn't cost us a hell of a lot. You know, so let's not be too naive about this. But I think this is the response to, this is, this is my thought about, about Chevron. Anyhow, I'm aware of the time. I really appreciate talking with you, and I will, I'm going to hang out around here and... Uh, uh, I hope I will see you again. Thank you so much. Well, what what's being done right now is there's a, a monk friend of mine who is there. I, I just heard from him yesterday, um, and I had met him in North Carolina two weeks ago, uh, and he is looking at this, looking at this. Uh, we really need to see whether the monks want to do this or whether it's practical. But I think it's practical, and it's not even that accessible. And I think that we have the money. Money is not going to be a problem. Money is available. The question is actually creating a relatively safe space for uh, for them in Thailand, which is not entirely friendly. So, uh, 
the government of Thailand? Yeah. Government of Thailand is just a very ambiguous uh, attitude. And some of it's historical. Uh, they, they still are pissed off at the Burmese for, uh, for uh, looting Ayutthaya, their, their capital. Anyway, that's the that's the answer. But stay tuned. It'll be on the it'll be on the Buddhist Peace Talk website. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you speaking tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. I'll tell Scott that I said. Please do. Yeah, good to see you. Very fun you know, one thing you said it just to recommend the best book about. Yep. Freedom. Oh, freedom from fear. I didn't say what you actually said. When you got distracted, then ah, yeah, freedom from fear. That's freedom from fear. Yes, yes. It's very good. <laughs> okay, take care, Ray. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to see. I went to Burma like four or five years ago, mm -hmm. and really, when this protest came up, it seemed like I felt some optimism that things would change. Yeah, of course, um, we all did. But I'm wondering because of your talk today, it seems so discouraging about the situation now. Do you think that there's progress that's been made? No. Yeah, well, yes and no. Since, I mean, since I the protests? Or, I mean, I know no. that things there's are There's no progress since the protest, except very quietly underground. Really? Uh, yeah, and, and those networks are reassembling, but uh, take care. I'll see you. Uh, uh, but really, it's a setback. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's you know everything is has has two sides, but uh, so many of the key activists are are in prison and at risk, uh, and so many of the monk leaders are in jail. Uh, it's going to take a long time for uh, for this energy to kind of regather. So, are you, do you think, are you optimistic someday it's going to? Of course. To? Oh, okay. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's because in my own negative way, I'm actually quite optimistic, so. Well, because when I went, it seemed like everyone was afraid to talk about anything or to do anything. Well, you know, I just heard from, I heard from, some people here know Temple Smith, uh -huh. who is, uh, does stuff here. He's a Vasana uh, teacher, or teacher in training, and he's there now. Uh, and he's been to Rangoon, and he just was in Mandalay. I just got an email from him, and what he said was, it's really different in that ordinary people are very interested in making contact. Mm. People want to talk about what's going on, and that's new, right? That is new. Yeah. No one so that's a, hopeful, that's a hopeful dynamic. I'm just sort of saying that there's a kind of joy and energy that springs up, yeah. which has been created by this. Good. And your don the donation today, does that go towards helping the people of Burma? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank yeah. you. Hi. I've been, uh, I read your letter and uh -huh. I've followed all this. I'm a part of the past engagement oh, program good. with Donald. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, so at some point through the emails came a request to donate money to send cameras into yeah. Burma. Yes, I've heard of it, and yeah, that's through something that we're generally affiliated with, and I, I'm not, I don't know where that's at, and I'm not sure. If that was useful. Well, I think it, it will be useful, but, you know, the cameras are for documentation. Exactly. Uh, right now, there's not a whole lot to document. But 
But the thing is, what you've been doing too is get the stories out. Yes. And how dangerous is it for regular folks? You've talked mostly to monks, I understand, but to regular folks to talk with Westerners. It can be done. It can be done. Yes. It's less dangerous for them than the monks. Um. Oh, it's definitely less dangerous than the monks. And you have to be careful about the venues and places and settings in which you talk to people. Right. You know, you just have to be really careful. We didn't talk about anything on the phone. Right. And even in people's houses, you tended to talk almost in a kind of code. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But there's still, it's not a kind of seamless monolithic dictatorship like people imagine in, you know, a kind of sealed Orwellian. It's, it's Orwellian enough, but there also is a, a little room for expression. And there's a little room for contact. And, and now your, your main thing that you're doing now is trying to set up a Dharma Center in Thailand. Yes, yes. I really would like to see that. Great. Yeah. I'm, sh I'm sure Jack will tell us more about that. Yeah, can support that yeah, definitely. That. For, for the Burmese that are coming over there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's not a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, for the monks, and monks right now are in these so-called safe houses, and they're living side by side with lay people, which is not appropriate. Uh, and they need a place to live in safety and also a place where they can practice right. and also get education mm -hmm. so they understand. So the ones, you know, who look kind of shell-shocked have some idea of what they are actually in. Right, I'm guessing most of them don't speak Thai and don't... No, none of them speak Thai. Anyway, yeah. 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 I just want, I wanted to give you some uh, music because oh. I know you're good. Uh, great guitarist. And oh, you are. I'm Eric. Eric, Eric. Gates. I play banjo. And oh, grow with uh, Alan. Hi. I put it around. So. Well, great. Well, thank you. Yeah. I was glad to hear you. There's. I'm, I was inter interested in the music, the singing group that you're talking about. They're fantastic. I mean, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Well, I will. I will keep you in mind. Uh, I keep you guys in mind. Uh, there, it just was. That was like the most unambiguously great thing that uh, that I experienced there. And I'm just saying, you know, they've got this little Zoom H4. Uh -huh. right. I had. I have a Zoom H2, which I brought with me. Yeah. And I recorded stuff, in the, and they then I played it back, and they flipped out. The quality. So, so I just everything. sent one uh -huh. to the music school with Temple, Temple Smith, who's been there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it'd be a great thing to be able to raise funds or something to, you know, if you can yeah. just make a little. Well, they're going to be, they're going to be. I, I've been, I may be sort of like thinking about being like tour manager or something. Yeah, because uh, uh, that'd be fun, yeah. you know. Uh, and I'm really pushing them. They need to come with the CD because they will sell shitloads of CDs. Oh yes, yeah. you know you. We know. You, go, yeah. you play the gigs, and people yeah. want the CDs. Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually where a lot of the money is. Yeah. Well, yeah. These days, especially because yeah. people that go. Well, thank you for this. Yeah. Uh, you guys are doing good. Seems we're doing like good. Really yeah. happening. We're uh, we're doing the film more on in April, mm -hmm. so that's exciting. It took us a long time to get as, there. As headline, even? Yeah. yeah. What, so what is this a banter? What is it? This hot is butter it's rum? a hot yeah, butter rum. Hot butter rum. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so great. And so. do you do hot butter rum? We don't we don't cover that song, but Did we, you we know it. We we had no idea it was a song. We oh, got the wow. name of the band, but 
because just, I, I know uh, I knew Tommy Thompson very well. Really? Yeah. He was a really wonderful guy. Yeah. Uh, he passed away uh, a number of years ago, but that was his song. Yeah, we, we went to Strawberry Music Festival the first year we were playing, and we weren't playing there, but somebody taught us that song. Right. It was a great song. Well, thank you, Eric. Yeah, thank See you. Yeah. All right. I just want to ask you yeah. the thing about Chevron. Yes. Could, do you mind just going over that real quickly? Yes. Uh, Chevron bought Unical. Unical was one of the investors with the French, uh, French Total. Mm -hmm. They were key investors in this pipeline that was running natural gas from the uh, Indian Ocean across Burma to Thailand. Mm -hmm. uh, there was actually a large suit against Unical, which was not won uh, for human rights violations. When that suit, when that suit uh, was unsuccessful, Chevron bought Unical, so they own a 28 percent stake in the Adana pipeline. Uh, so far you wouldn't be, right? Yes. Uh, and what what I was saying was if Chevron were to divest, it would have no economic effect in, uh, in Burma because the Chinese would buy the concessions right away. So they would, all that, that would still be happening. Uh, but we claim this kind of moral high ground in now we being the U.S. government okay. in terms of the sanctions. We have very strict sanctions with the exception of Chevron. Huh. That's the only exception. Huh. Uh, so Why is that? Because of money? or Because it was grandfathered into legislation by Clinton administration. Yeah, because it's money. Because Chevron is incredibly powerful. And they can do whatever they want. And that has a lot to do with the gas prices in yeah. Burma. Yes. The gas prices in Burma, no, not directly. What happened in there, and I asked a lot of people, and never couldn't get any conclusive response. It was not Chevron's fault. What gas and oil, gas and natural gas, gasoline and natural gas in, in uh, Burma were highly subsidized. Uh, so they weren't floating at the at the market value, at the international market value, they were they were much lower, mm -hmm. uh, which is what people could just even so barely afford. Mm -hmm. uh, the government felt it, for whatever it purposes, and this is what I couldn't get straight, they needed a lot more money. And so they own, they own all this gas, the resources, money come to them, so they just raised the price. And that just caused all this? Yes, yes. That, uh, that just incited it. it. The causes were there from the right. beginning. Right, and yeah. there's a different cause and what they're really saying it yeah. is. Right, right. Okay. right. Thank you so much. Because okay. I, I got distracted. Yeah. I wanted to hear it. Okay, well, thank you. Thank Thanks you for asking. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Thank you. That was great. Good. So I think Sarah said, did she let you know with the CSW9? Yeah, yeah. I thought I sent one, but maybe that was someplace else. Let me just put this stuff away and I'll fill it out. No problem. And then I'll leave this here. It's also just a form for the your talk that we'll upload. Okay. The timing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.